0: Super Talk Mississippi Media Production.
1: Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Jamie Creel with Shelter Insurance. Come see how we've built a name that you can trust and why it is a must to get your free quote today with our Switch and Safe. Located in Ridgeland and
0: Florida, Mississippi, give us a call 601 992 6000. Well, welcome everyone to True American Heroes for the Record. And today we're honored to have with us uh, Mr. Charles Ferg, who is actually from the Hazelhurst community. Um, but he's got a very unique distinction that I am I'm um, just proud to uh, meet this gentleman. Uh, 31 and a half years is that correct? Charles. That's correct. 31 and a half years in the United States Marine Corps. Hurrah. Hurrah. Slippery Well, it's an honor to have you here. Um, we uh, are looking forward to this conversation. Uh, I don't I don't honestly think I have ever met a gentleman who served that length of time in the uh, in the Corps. Uh, but it is an honor to have you with us today. Uh, thank you. All right. Well, let's just get right into this. I think it was interesting. We were talking a moment ago, and you were telling me a little bit how you got exposed to the Marines. And it started out as a really young
1: chap. Roger that. Uh, I was caddying on a golf course that was right across the street from the Marine Corps Reserve Center in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, where I'm from. And uh, I was hanging out, just kind of watching what was going on. And they invited me to come in, and eventually I started working with them. And I was cleaning machine guns and (laughs) rifles and pistols. And the funniest thing, though, was one day they said, do you want to buff the deck? And uh, I said, sure. I never did it before. This was a huge buffer because the parade deck inside this building was big. And so I grabbed a hold of it, and that thing took off, and I was <laughs> hanging on for dear life. And the whole I staff was <laughs> sitting off to the side, just laughing their heads oh, off. That's
0: funny, because they are hard to, unless you know the technique, a yeah. buffer's a, got a mind of its own. Roger now, that. you just said something that was interesting. Uh, the Marine Corps is a separate uh, branch – of the United States military. But they're closely affiliated with the Navy. Roger that. Okay. And I noticed you used an interesting word because you didn't say the floor. You said the deck. Now, that's that's kind of a Navy term, but yet because uh, the Marines are so much a part of the Navy and the Navy a part of the Marines, missions are uh, very, very... You know, close to one another yep. and together. Uh, you used a lot of naval terms in in the Marine Corps all the time. All the time, and deck, as you would be referring to uh, the deck of a ship, is what you guys called uh, the uh, uh, the inside of a building in the in the Corps.
1: Yeah, and the ceiling would be the overhead, and the walls would be bulkheads.
0: Bulkheads. <clears throat> That's so neat. All right, so you you kind of kind of I'm sure that was for a youngster. How old did you say you were?
1: I was 15 and 16. Okay.
0: That had to be quite a rush. I mean, that was exciting to be around those Marines, especially them letting you do some of the things. Of course, we we couldn't do that today, but back then we could do that kind of thing, and that built up, kind of probably had a kind of motivated you yeah. toward the future. Let me
1: tell you another story about that. So when I turned 17, I wanted to enlist in the reserves, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and so I – both parents had to sign that, right. and my dad signed, my mother wouldn't, and so I brought the recruiter home, <laughs> and she was so embarrassed that he was there that she signed just to get rid of him. <laughs> <laughs> so,
0: so you actually got into the reserves at 17?
1: Yep, two weeks after my 17th birthday.
0: Awesome. Well, was it was it something that you were was it that was a lifelong dream? I guess even though you'd only been around them a couple of no, years, it
1: really wasn't. It wasn't until I had gotten over there and was working yeah. as a youngster, yeah, yeah, and I just wanted to be part of it. But one of the things that's interesting now, then, that would never happen now, is that organizations would call us and have us come out and do live fire demonstrations, and we would take machine guns and back then i was a bar man Mm -hmm. and they'd take a rifle Mm -hmm. and the heavy machine gun was one of those water-cooled machine guns oh yeah and the staff sergeant that was shooting that would intentionally pick a tree that was about eight to ten inches in diameter and cut it down with that machine Mm -hmm. gun but boy scout troops vfws american legions we'd do it for any of them
0: And so, about what year would that have been? So we'd have a reference point there. Uh, Let's see. I
1: went in '57. Uh, I went went to boot camp in '58. Okay, because I was still in high school. Okay, so I was on what they called the delayed entry
0: program. Right. Right. And so So that would have been '60, around '59. '59 or '60. Awesome. All right. Well, we got to talk. You know, we got to talk about the legendary basic training for the Marine Corps. I've heard it called a lot of things, and a lot of those things we're not going to say on the air, but uh, uh, I've had some good friends who went through it years ago, older gentlemen like myself, and some young men who have been through it in the last few years, and it is, uh, to say the least, grueling, demanding, where they tear you down and build you back. Is that pretty close, or how would you describe it?
1: See, I had had already been in the Marines for a year before i went to boot camp and i actually went to boot camp as a pfc which okay. nobody else does <laughs> okay but so i knew what to expect i got my hair cut short before i went and <laughs> as a result i already knew how to march mm-hmm. and i was selected as the section leader and the right guide That's which awesome. are prestigious That's positions right, <clears throat> right. Uh, so I was I was far ahead of anybody else in that platoon,
0: and it wasn't that difficult. That's the first time I've ever heard that. <laughs> you must have been a tough little fella, because uh, it weren't. is a grueling, sir.
1: Yeah, well, that, you know, people warned me and told me what to expect. So See, that's I right. I wasn't You've been surprised. exposed
0: to the Marine Corps for over a year by that time. Right. Okay.
1: So and I was real active in my reserve using, unit because okay. they had known me for a couple of years. So I was on the color guard. Oh, I was on their weapons demonstration
0: team. Color so, guard is the gentleman is usually what is it? Is it five men four? Four men, <clears throat> American flag. flag flag, and, Corps and, two flag riflemen. and two riflemen. Yeah. That's a that's a very prestigious thing uh, to be selected for the color guard. Okay. So, uh, Paris Island where the basic training takes place. And, and while you're there, I know it's a lot of physical training, there's a lot of mental testing and they're evaluating did you know before you went to Paris Island kind of what the Marine Corps was going to do with you? Of course everybody in the Marine Corps goes through infantry training but then they specialize based on capabilities and skills Right. how did that right. progress for you?
1: Well I was a, what they call an 03 rifleman uh, infantry MOS and so all well, my training up to the point where I went on active duty and went into aviation, mm-hmm. it was all based on infantry. And I loved it. I mean, my daddy was a BAR man in World War One. Oh, my. And I was a BAR man in 1957.
0: That's awesome. That's an awesome story.
1: And actually, I just bought one.
0: Get out of here. I was going to ask you when you were doing your infantry training before they issued, are you selected. To- to be a BAR uh, operator. Oh, were they still using the M1 Garand? Sir, yes, ah, finest weapon I think ever made for what it accomplished and how it served in World War II and and, and post World War II uh, Korea as well. I think so. Uh,
1: yeah, I had fired expert in boot camp, and when I got home, they put me on the rifle team. <clears throat> so I was shooting com- um, competition.
0: M1 Garand was an awesome weapon, and now you bought your own BAR to. Hanging on the wall or lock no, it up in the safe it
1: sits on the floor
0: <laughs> <laughs> how heavy bar was pretty heavy it's
1: 21 pounds
0: and you guys didn't carry your weapon and ammo Yep. did you carry oh, yeah. both oh yeah i thought we had a separate No, oh, that was okay i'm yeah, thinking about you had, the other... you had
1: an assistant bar man who carried ammunition
0: that's right Ooh. okay so uh, the browning automatic rifle is a is an awesome weapon as well it's hard to. Somebody told me you don't really aim it, you just point it and pull the trigger. Well,
1: the key is just tap the trigger, and just tapping the trigger gets you three rounds downrange.
0: Wow. Wow. And it's
1: fairly accurate. When I fired it, I was 120 pounds back then, and so I had to put sandbags on the bipod <laughs> oh, yeah? in front to keep yeah. it from moving.
0: Yeah. And it did have a tripod, didn't it? Bipod. A bipod, excuse me. Yeah, bipod. I'd forgotten about that. Man, this is neat. Okay, so you're in the in the core. Uh what was your first uh base assignment?
1: Well, I went back to Johnstown. and So that's where you were. Yeah. And my neighbor, from. my neighbor across the alley from where I lived was a Korean War vet, and he said, "Charlie, he says, you can't make a living as a 03. You got to learn a trade." And so he convinced me to go into aviation. Okay. And so I Went on active duty in 1959 and went to Millington, Tennessee yeah. to the aviation school system. Yeah. Yeah. And when I got there, they put me in what they called uh, the AQ school, which was Airborne Missile Control Systems. <clears throat> and so that was my MOS. Okay. And it turned out to be a critical MOS that I could not get out of <laughs> as well, much as it, I tried. it
0: got real busy over the next uh, 10, 20 years. Uh, Because you're talking about now in the early '60s, and uh, we're progressing toward Vietnam. Uh, Now, pretty incredible story you shared earlier. uh, You actually had three deployments in Vietnam uh, in the Marine Corps, Uh, and all three you volunteered to go.
1: Oh yeah, I couldn't wait. Was that? I mean, Marines trained to go. It
0: is a, the war. It's, a, it's so, combat unit. That's what they're yeah. designed to do. Yeah, that's that's and most I of Marines. I hate to sit back
1: and not be able to participate to
0: serve. So let's talk about the first deployment. I believe you said that was 1965. Correct. Correct. All right. Tell us about what you, where you were, and what you did in 19. That first was it two years? One year?
1: It was a one year deployment. Gotcha. And it was a normal rotational deployment. Gotcha. Uh, we went to Atsugi, Japan first, and we stayed there, and we were staging to go to Vietnam. And mm-hmm. we we were sitting there all packed up for three months, and finally, they said, it's time to go. And I don't know what, but anyhow, they told us the Air Force was going to fly us in on C-141s, mm-hmm. which are a lot bigger than a Marine Corps C-130. 30. Yeah. At the last minute, they changed it to Marines 130s, and all our pallets had to be broken down and put into smaller. Resized, yep. Yep. And so we went. Unfortunately, stuff got all mixed up, and it didn't come in in the priorities that it should have.
0: So you flew into, where, was you, where were you guys? We went to the Nang, yes. Okay. And this was a Marine Aviation Group. Marine Fighter Squadron. And, and, and you were flying at that time, what F4, aircraft? F4Bs. F4Bs?
1: uh it turns out when we got there that they didn't need fighters they needed bombers well the phantom carries a lot of bombs in fact we ran the bomb dump out of bombs <coughs> at one time
0: how many aircraft were in your we had 18 18 and that's a two-man ship yep pilot and uh weapons
1: uh, no they call or it, it they- rio yeah, yeah, Uh right. Radar operator, radar right. intercept operator. That's oh, right. Def- officer.
0: Kind of a defensive thing. All right, so you're in Da Nang and you're keeping them in the air. How many missions were you guys flying? Oh, all the time. Nighttime I mean, missions?
1: Yeah. I mean, we could watch our planes dropping the bombs. They were that close to the base.
0: I bet that was interesting. Yeah. So they didn't have far to go to get fuel and or weapons. Nope. Good, gracious but life!
1: The other side of that was that since they didn't need the radar, they took the radar shop and they made us the camp guard, <laughs> and I was the sergeant of the guard.
0: So you were back carrying a weapon again, yeah. and uh, instead of working on a- aircraft as you had been trained, well, but yeah. that's 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 typical military. You, you, Somebody the had need. to do it. Somebody's you know? got to do it, and where the need is is where you uh, where you put your men. All right, we're going to take a short break and we'll be back in just a minute with uh, uh, Mr. Charles Ferg from Hazelhurst, Mississippi, and a, uh, a member of the United States Marine Corps for 31 and a half years. College baseball is back. Your favorite teams in the best matchups of the season. And nobody covers America's pastime like Sports Talk, Mississippi. Afternoons on Super Talk, Mississippi. Welcome back. We're honored to have with us Mr. Charles Ferg, a 31-year veteran of the United States Marine Corps. Uh, served three, three uh, uh, deployments in uh, Vietnam. Uh, actually went into uh, the Middle East, and we'll talk about that briefly. Uh, but uh, we're, it's an honor to have you with us, Charles. Glad to be here. Okay. Let's, let's get right back in it. We were talking about uh, – your your tour, different tours and all of these you volunteer for because you just you just wanted to be in the fight naturally, uh, so you were um, the first tour was in Da Nang the second tour was on Marble Mountain which was west of Da Nang I believe Roger that and and that was a little different aircraft tell us about that briefly
1: uh, when I first went there I was <clears throat> I was a temporary commissioned officer at the time. And I went to what they called HAM-16, which is the major repair facility for the helicopters. And at this time, we had nine helicopter squadrons, Mm -hmm. which was the biggest helicopter group I think the Marine Corps has ever had. Mm. Uh, But for six months, I I supported uh, repairing electronic equipment for those nine squadrons. In January of 1970, I was transferred to the 1st Cobra Squadron at the Marine Corps head, and it was uh, HML 367. And I was assigned as the avionics weapons officer, which takes care of the guns and all the munitions that go in it. And uh, I actually got to fly one once, test fire it, (coughs) the uh, we didn't have Marine Cobras at the time. We had Army Cobras. And part of the problem there was that they had Army radios that weren't the same as Navy <laughs> radios. So I had to I had to take broken radios from our base down to what they called Red Beach, which was the Army supply base, <coughs> and swap them uh, with our bad radios. Uh, but these Cobras, <coughs> unlike... The the, uh, Marine Cobras, which have a 20-millimeter Vulcan cannon in the nose, this one had a 40-millimeter cannon and Mm. also a minigun, plus the rocket pods on each uh, stub wing.
0: How many rockets would a a pod hold?
1: I think 24.
0: Goodness. That's a lot of firepower. Yeah. Now, were these support missions for Marine Corps units or just anybody? Anybody. That needed help, you guys were there to support.
1: The bad part was, and I— I think they're experiencing this now in Afghanistan and Iraq. Is that under the rules of engagement? Mm-hmm. My pilots said when they got back that they needed ten minutes to get approval to fire, and by that time the target was already gone.
0: Was that happening in Vietnam? It was in the
1: nineteen seventy.
0: Wow! Wow! So, I'm what a very terrible upset position to put those yeah. guys in.
1: I mean, we're going over there to win. A war, not to
0: play games. You it's know. Politics involved, as it Roger often that. is. All right, so right, you know, you've been with f Fours now. You're working with Cobras. I want to touch briefly on your experience on your third third tour. Um, I mean, you were involved in uh, every aspect of of, of Vietnam, uh, except jungle fighting, and and you probably came as close as as uh, as most did. But at the same time, that third Deployment and that third mission uh, is a part of history that a lot of people may not be aware of was the evacuation of Saigon right before the the actual shall we say end of hostilities which i don 't think it really ended but that 's what yeah. the public was being told Tell us about what it was like for the evacuation of Saigon when we said okay let 's get our people out of there because North Vietnam is taken over.
1: Uh, again, I was a first sergeant and <clears throat> with a rifle company, and we were on an amphibious assault ship, and we pulled into Saigon Harbor in the, at night, and when we got up the next morning and went up on deck, there were ships from horizon to horizon, just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of all kinds of ships, and little boats were coming out from Saigon carrying people, and we were offloading them onto all these ships, <clears throat> our ship was one of the few that could land helicopters. And so there were Uis coming in, Vietnamese Uis coming in. We'd offload them, push the airplanes off the side of the ship so the next one could land. Mm. And we kept doing this for hours until they finally ran out of gas, <clears throat> and they went, the rest of them went in the ocean. But Goodness. I think we were able to rescue everybody. <clears throat> and those
0: what? were those were vietnamese. vietnamese they were they were american mm-hmm. helicopters but with vietnamese crews trying to right. evacuate vietnamese citizens and civilians
1: it was generally their families of the pilots
0: ah uh, uh, trying to get them out
1: and in one case there was what we were sure as a uh, base commander came in with greenbacks in every little pocket of his flight suit he must have had thousands of dollars there
0: unbelievable
1: the other side that was interesting was that we searched everybody primarily for weapons, but what we found was that everybody had gold bars on them. Where'd they get those? They had they had bought those before the money went bad. Because there was Vietnamese piasters everywhere, but they were worthless at that time.
0: Of course they they were they were terrified of the aspect or the. perspective. The idea or the possibility of the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong taking over and the, and the wholesale uh, numbers of people that would have been put to death, most likely, yep. that were. And so they were desperate to get out, and it, it was pretty chaotic. And I'm sure, like you said, they, they flew the helicopters, they ran out of fuel, and they had a ditch, and then they were able to be picked up by your smaller smaller ships. So uh, how long did that go on? It went on for three days. And it um, had to be a little bit emotional as well as just the physical demands of it.
1: Actually, the Vietnamese constructed little tents on our flight deck after the after the planes were all done, <clears throat> and so we had about two thousand refugees on our ship.
0: Any security issues there?
1: After we searched everybody, you were comfortable. We were all right.
0: So, how long were you actually in that area? How, when did y'all pull out, and where did you go from there? We went back to Okinawa. Back to Okinawa. How far is Okinawa from Vietnam? Is it a pretty good trip? <sighs> I can't really tell you. Uh, that's right. I'm it's just wasn't it's sure. not that far. I though. I didn't think it was because it's south, e- I think south uh, east of Japan, so it can't be too far from you guys. Yeah. So okay, you you finish that deployment uh, and you're back in the states, uh, and then you you have a little bit of a time of, of uh, shall we say, peace. No, uh, you weren't there there weren't any battles being fought around the world that we knew of. There probably was, but we just didn't know about it. So uh what was the next deployment? You you got another one?
1: Yeah, we went to Beirut as part of the multinational peacekeeping force. What year was that? That was in eighty three.
0: That was had to be a very interesting, if not extremely difficult place to be. Did you guys have any <clears throat> any interaction with the people?
1: Yeah, we did. But it was mostly the Christians.
0: <clears throat> Not the there Muslim were, side?
1: No. There was 26 different factions there when Good we got there. Good And they were all against each other. <clears throat> so we never knew who was going to Not be. just
0: one civil war, but probably about 15 or 20 civil wars yeah, going on at one really. time. So what were you doing? What was your assignment at that point?
1: I was a battalion sergeant major. Sergeant <clears throat> major. so I was uh, – the colonel and I would <clears> – <throat> we hardened our jeep with sandbags on the floor – we turned a rear seat around. I was riding a tail gunner, and the driver was fully armed, as was the colonel. <clears throat> and so we would drive around because our our four companies had different positions around Beirut.
0: Wow! And uh, so so they there was okay. I'm sure they were well secured, but that's that's significant separation from from you know from where your command post was yeah. to where these outside units were. Ooh. How many guys were in, in those separate locations?
1: Uh, usually about 120.
0: Okay, now that's that's now, a pretty we significant. Had, number. This
1: was a battalion landing team, so we had okay we had artillery. That's right, five yeah. artillery okay. pieces. We had tanks. We had five tanks. We had all everything. Yeah,
0: you you were in a, you were in a pretty good position. I didn't realize you had all of that support. So you well, were there how
1: long? We also had the New Jersey.
0: Oh, okay, off <laughs> And and what size guns does the New Jersey have? Sixteen inch. Sixteen inch, and that's a range of how many miles?
1: Uh, over twenty.
0: And and pretty doggone accurate. Of course, yeah. I know there's always collateral, but uh, but those weapons, even back at that time, were un- uncannily accurate with sixteen inch, twenty mile range.
1: You could hear those rounds going over; it sounded like a freight train going through the sky.
0: That had was been awesome. incredible, incredible. Okay, so how long were you actually in Beirut? Uh, let's see, about four months. Okay, and and did, give me your feel. Was it like probably every other place, there were those who were glad to see you and those that you knew, if you turned your back on them, you might be a victim? Yeah, Like
1: I say, we didn't have much dealings with the Muslim population. Yeah. Uh, we dealt with the Christians when we first got there, and then – really didn't have much contact with them we had some adverse contact with the israelis Uh, on one occasion the colonel and i were out going on a foot patrol with uh, one of the companies and ran into an israeli patrol Mm. and they wouldn't let us pass the colonel was talking to the state department in washington dc and they this is right on the road in beirut (laughs) And they said, "Get away! Let the Israelis go through you."
0: Oh my word!
1: And another occasion, we were down on the airfield, and all of a sudden, somebody started shooting at us. It was an Israeli tank up on the hillside with a fifty-caliber machine gun. <clears throat> and another time, an Israeli tank pulled up to one of our outposts and pointed their main gun right at oh, our my. people. The funny part was the tank commander was a U.S. Army staff sergeant who had been stationed with my platoon sergeant who was there in Ohio on recruiting duty. They knew each other. This guy was on 30 days leave. He came to Israel to fight for the Israeli Army. Can you imagine that? No,
0: I cannot. That just blows me away. But these are some incredible stories we we've, we've been sharing today Mr. Charles Ferg from uh, from the Hazelhurst area but uh, glad to be glad to have him in our in our radio uh, audience uh, I, I like I said earlier I don't think I've ever known anyone that was the, that served in the Marine Corps as long as you have I've known some 20 year guys 25 year guys but I don't think I've known anybody that served 30 and a half years in the corps uh, and it's an honor to have you with us today. Uh, we want to we take just a moment to thank you for your service. Uh, thank you for recognizing that. Well, I thank you for your service. I thank you for your sacrifice. I thank, I thank you for your willingness to do what, what our country needed done during those years uh, when you gave up so much of your youth to wear the uniform of the Marine Corps, which is a great honor, as it is any of the uniforms. Uh, But, uh, Mr. Ferg, on behalf of of our country and on behalf of our community, I want to say thank you for your service. Uh, Thank you for your uh, willingness to wear that uniform and do uh, what you did. it's been It's been an honor to have you here in the station today sharing these experiences with us.
1: Amen. My pleasure, too. Thank you, sir.
0: A Super Talk Mississippi Media Production.